0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Price Lab Podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person, lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we are temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. This episode of the Price Lab podcast features Kathleen Fitzpatrick and Whitney Troutine in conversation. Professor Fitzpatrick is Director of Digital Humanities and Professor of English at Michigan State University, and Professor Troutine is Assistant Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. Fitzpatrick and Troutine discuss the opportunities of digital publishing, as well as the status of optimism and decidedly pessimistic times.
1: So in an era of pessimism about the future of the humanities, I really think of you as one of our kind of endearingly and enduringly optimistic thinkers. And there's a real sense in your writing that you believe in the power and the force of higher education, especially as public institutions and higher education as a, a public good and still a, a space of social mobility. And you know, I was r- looking back on your book and rereading parts of Generous Thinking um, in the last few days, and it's, it's so optimistic and yet our times are so pessimistic. So I wanted to just start by asking you to, to reflect on generous thinking and the work that it's doing in light of 2020, broadly speaking
2: the the quality of my optimism is deeply strained right now and i I have to acknowledge that it is not a time in which it's easy to maintain uh like we can do it outlook and yet there's something internal in me and i don't know what it is if it's just thick-headedness or if it's privilege or if it's you know any number of other potential characteristics that have led me to be unable to really just let go of that sense that we have to do something to try to make this better. You know I have a little bit of Pollyanna kind of look for the the bright side in in everything. I mean that having been said you know, if I were to look back at, at generous thinking, there are things that I know that I would do differently if I were writing it in 2020 instead of writing the bulk of it in 2017, 2018. And I think one of the key things is is in the preface, I mention that You know near the end of the writing of the book it had become really hard to keep the book from becoming fundamentally angry and there's a a not insignificant part of me that now feels like that was misplaced energy that in fact a little more anger might be entirely called for at this hour of the world and might in fact be more productive in thinking about the importance of some of the call to change that I'm trying to make. You know, it was it was all very easy in 2016 as I was starting to write the book to really think, well, you know, we can talk about generosity and we can really think about how to build bridges between the academy and the publics that we serve and we can do more to support one another and create a better world. And I still believe all of that. But I now like, cannot help but recognize um, the, the danger that we face. The threats that we're under right now, both politically and environmentally and, you know, in, in health oriented contexts, given, given COVID, have, have become too clear not to feel like we're fighting for our survival within the academy and attempting to figure out how we carry on that fight, how we encourage one another to believe that the fight is worth fighting is part of where I feel like that optimism now has to be placed. I'm, I'm working right now, in fact, on a sort of follow up to generous thinking, because, you know, as I've done a lot of traveling and speaking, you know, as the book came out, I had a lot of people even before, you know, the current disasters turn to me and say, well, you know, it's all well and good to be generous in good times. You know, when we're flush, we've got money to invest, we can think about new programs and new possibilities, but what happens in bad times, right? What happens when we start cutting budgets? What happens when we have to lay people off? How can we maintain generosity at those moments? And oh boy, if that isn't difficult, if we're going to manage to be generous in a time that is as disastrous as this one potentially is, we really have to find ways, first of all, to continue to believe in the the agency of the individual to do something to make change, while at the same time recognizing that individuals are overcome by everything around them and that the power of the individual lies in the power to create groups and to mobilize groups to create change. So, I mean, how do I maintain optimism? Mm -hmm. In certain senses through that, through thinking about the people who are taking the time to work together Mm -hmm. and who are sharing their energy and their enthusiasm and who are really attempting to take institutions and organizations and and, entire states and make them be the thing that they ought to be. Make them be the generous kinds of institutions that they ought to be. It is not easy, but it seems worth fighting for.
1: You mentioned that you would put a little more anger into generous thinking. And I don't mean to pull you back to the pessimism and the pessimistic side, but I'm wondering like, what, what is Kathleen Fitzpatrick angry about today? Like, what are the, the places where you see the most need for that change to happen?
2: What I'm most angry about right now, as I'm sitting here today, is the need that so many of our institutions are feeling to maintain revenue generation um at all costs right at the cost of the health of staff and and faculty at the health of uh, at the cost of the health of students at the cost of the quality of the kinds of education that we deliver at the, at at any cost we must maintain tuition dollars coming in we must maintain football revenue we must maintain you know that all of these things that have become so necessary to us precisely because our culture has decided that higher education is a private responsibility rather than a public good um it infuriates me and i find myself infuriated more than anything with i mean how to put this I recognize the difficult position that many of our institutional leaders are in, um, in that they're being looked at by boards who are overwhelmingly politically and corporately determined entities, right? And that these boards who have very strong feelings about the institution's financial processes and solvency, Um, are looking to the leaders of those institutions to maintain solvency regardless. But I want somewhere, I want somewhere, a, a cohort of university presidents who are willing to stand up and turn to their legislators and say, this university is not just a you know not for profit corporation that has to be happens to be located in your state it is your state this is your state government that is operating on a shoestring and that is charging families and students obscene amounts of money to attend. And unless the state is willing to support this thing, it's, it's going to die. And what is going to become of higher education in the state? What is going to become of the economy in the state? To take that initiative to look at legislature, legislatures and say, this is your job to fix, not just ours. And it's not the job of the families and the students who are paying the tuition to help us balance the budget. And it's not the job of the unpaid football players to help us balance the budget, right? It's the job of the legislature. And I want so badly for somebody to be willing to stand up and really fight their state government to say, you must return us to an appropriation level that allows us to function.
1: I really like and appreciate that point, especially as someone who formerly worked at a public institution at UNC Chapel Hill. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about the double edged sword of the public institution in the sense that on the one hand, there it is it is this fertile ground this opportunity for all the kinds of generous thinking that you discuss in the book for instance to flourish but and and what you're saying right now for there to be public pushback and yet at the same time and again still thinking of UNC and and their covid disaster right i mean they are beholden to a board of governors that is beholden to a republican and conservative legislature that in many ways, is at odds completely with what the faculty and even the students were wanting, but the parents might be wanting it, right? So we're in this moment of great tension around what a public institution is and who who does it serve. and i'm I'm wondering, you know, just your reaction to that, but also thinking about, have faculty and those of us who work specifically in the humanities, I'm thinking, have we done enough to promote what we do? To the people we serve, and if if not, what can we do? Like, how can we get that message out there more?
2: Yeah, I I think that's that's um, that is exactly the question that we need to be asking. I mean, I I do see, I mean, the, the thing that you were describing about the the complexities that higher education is in right now in these conflicting desires of students and parents and trustees and faculty and thinking about what higher education is supposed to be today, um, I think comes down to a deep conflict in the paradigms under which it operates. I mean, on the one hand, You know, we on campus like to think of the purpose of higher education as being, you know, broad based liberal education in the original sense. Right. That sense of being prepared for uh, to be a contributor to a broader social good, um, whatever that social good may may look like. By and large, much of the public has been led to understand the purpose of higher education being getting the credential that will get you the job that will enable you to develop individual personal wealth. Or even if it's not about developing you know, wealth, it's about developing a good individual life. right? So it's an internal personal private goal rather than that public social building a sense of an educated populace. And because of that, that privatization of the goals of higher education, we have a real uphill battle in fields like ours, in, in the humanities, in the arts, to think about like what is it that we do that contributes to that public good, that we can demonstrate like what what is what is good for the world is to study things that we can provide. I mean what would I say for to the second half of your question what what we as faculty could do to make that work more public. I think one of the things we need to do is make that work more public. Um, just simply by thinking about how the work that we do for one another, the the things that we write that are aimed at other specialists, might in fact be opened up a bit in ways that could draw other kinds of readers in to see the importance of what it is that we do and why we do it, and put us into dialogue with more public readers who are interested in thinking about the future of literature, the future future of art, um, but in ways that are not necessarily part of our expert-to-expert kind of dialogues. So I think the more that we can do to demonstrate That, you know, what we do within the academy is not, you know, a bunch of pointy headed intellectuals sitting around sort of pointlessly hypothesizing about things that don't matter, but that are in fact really at the heart of what it is to live in a world that's as saturated with representation as the one that we live in that we might be able to demonstrate like look this is the significance of higher education today is because it prepares you to deal with a world that is as utterly goofy as this one and it prepares you to make good decisions on behalf of not just yourself and your family but your community
1: this brings me to something else i wanted to talk about which is technology. So, of course, your first book took up these questions from the perspective of technology and and arguing that we can make our work public better through the web, through things like blogs, emerging forms of communication, scholarly communications, through open peer review, for instance. And I, I wanted to ask you to just reflect a little bit on the state of technology as a means of making public our work and where you see hope and where you see progress since that first book, Planned Obsolescence, and where you see some maybe backsliding? I
2: think uh, there has been a fair bit of progress in certain regards. I mean, we're certainly at a moment where the vast majority of scholarship that's being produced is circulating in the network somehow. Right. But in other ways, the, the forms in which the majority of scholarship are circulating have become even more entrenched. I mean, we're, we're still dealing with the PDF as the primary form in which scholarship circulates, you know, even if some scholarly books are put out in EPUB versions it's they become difficult to use use because how do you cite them it it just you know we're so we're, we're still in this place where certain of the ways that we work are so locked into the ways that things have been that it becomes more challenging um, to to break out of them and to do something different peer review is an interesting case because i think we're seeing more willingness to think about new forms of peer review about more open peer review about peer review that's done within communities about you know uh, uh, there there are more options out there um but i don't know that there's been enough thinking yet about why we have those options and what those options are good for and how best to design peer review processes that really serve the work and serve the community of discourse that that the work is circulating within as, as well as they possibly might. So I, I would love to see more emphasis placed on that and on really thinking about what it is that peer review is for in the first place, why this process of having things vetted by experts is key to the, the circulation of the work and to our trust in it and our faith in it. Um, and if if we can get at the why, I think a little better, we might begin to, to loosen up a little bit on the how and to be able to admit more possibilities um, and recognize that they are peer review rather than some kind of weird alternative.
1: That makes me think about Humanities Commons and I know that you were involved in the development of that. I wanted to ask you about the state of that and how you think these kind of open repository projects are going and if you see progress there. I do, I do, really excitingly.
2: So just in the last couple of weeks, we've announced that Humanities Commons is transferring its base of operations. It's its hosting and its fiscal sponsorship from the Modern Language Association to Michigan State University. So it's it's gonna be joining me here and a lab that I've been working with here is gonna take over its development. And we've hit a point where that kind of transfer became desirable because we're breaking out after a few years of the pilot stage of this project, right? We now have 25,000 users worldwide who are sharing things in the repository and who are participating in groups and who are starting websites, and that scale is is really requiring us to think more seriously about about the project's maturity, about its fiscal future, about you know what what it's going to look like, how it's going to develop, and how how we can use the technologies and people who are committed to this project to really think about building something um, robust and new. And you know, I think a lot of the the scholars who've joined us have recognized that the real benefit of Humanities comes, I mean, there's so many ways to share your work online these days, you can put it on your own website, you can put it in your institutional repository, you can put it on one of those networks um, that I'm not actually going to name, but that you know the ones I'm talking about um, that are are commercial, in fact, but that promise to share your work openly with the world. And I think folks are beginning to really recognize that having, first of all, a, a an online professional presence that can follow you wherever you go, that you don't have to rely on your continued employment at a particular institution, but that will remain yours regardless. And knowing that that, that platform that you're working with is and will remain not-for-profit, that it is committed to the kinds of scholarly values that scholars are committed to, it becomes increasingly important as the options proliferate. So, I mean, we've got a whole lot of of possibilities on our plate in terms of the way that the network is gonna gonna develop from here. We're super excited about the possibility of being able to bring in more fields and um, more institutions and more organizations into the, the support of the network. Work. But really, you know, for scholars who are gradually recognizing that a network like ours is, is, is a place where they can place their trust um, has really become key to its expansion, I think
1: yeah, that's brilliant. As a book historian, I love this idea that we have to build trusts into the network, right? We have to we have to build social good and social will into the network. Um, it doesn't just come <laughs> de novo with the technology. you know, it's something that we have to build collectively exactly, exactly. On that note, I wanted to ask you if you see more transformation right now in the ways that we're reading. Or the ways that we're writing, or some combination of both. Like, where's the biggest site of transformation? Like in circa twenty twenty. Like, what is changing the most when it comes to technology and the the nitty gritty of the work that we do every day?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm of super mixed minds about this. Um, on the one hand, you know, I want to say that over the last ten years, um, the the biggest change has been in the ways that we read. Right? And I think, you know, the, the post-COVID, well, post onset of COVID moment has made that really clear, that that need to be able to get a hold of things when we're isolated has led to the increased network distribution of materials. And so, you know, the, the digi- digitized and born digital materials that we're working with increasingly, I think have had a radical transformation um, on the ways that we read. On the other hand, you're finding all of these stories now about how people are returning to print um, because they're recognizing that their attention spans are not quite the same when they've got, you know, the possibility of email right behind the thing they're trying to read. Focus becomes different. And, you know, the tactile experience of, of, of annotation is different. All of those things are different. But I do think that, that the ways that we read have changed more dramatically to some extent than the ways that we write. But I think where the potential for the greatest change um, that is sitting right in front of us right now lies is in that confluence of reading and writing in those networks like Humanities Commons, but like a bunch of other networks, too, where we're we're really beginning to see the ways that scholarship develops as an ongoing conversation and that both reading and writing are part of participating in that conversation. And so I think that that it's um, it's in that that conjunction that I would like to think we're going to see the biggest change in the coming couple of years.
1: So I wanted to end by asking you what you're working on today. What are you thinking about today? What are you gonna be thinking about for the next year or two?
2: Well, I've got a couple of different things that that I've been thinking about. As I mentioned, I'm sort of working on a follow-up to Generous Thinking that's designed to be, I mean, how to imagine it, a kind of workshop guide, right? Like, you you and your colleagues have read Generous Thinking and you think, great, let's make a more generous institution. Now what? How do you do this? Um, so this it's a it's a kind of what a, a little bit of a deconstructed leadership guide to to thinking about about making a better future for our institutions. And so I've been thinking about leadership a lot, which is a, a really odd thing to to think about at this hour of the world. The other thing though is I I really want at some point to turn back to, you know, my my media studies self and to start thinking about the again, the state of the networks um, that we're working within today. And how to put this, how social media came to be the dumpster fire that it is. And what might have been done differently and where the possibilities lie for us to build a better future for social media, for a social media that is genuinely social rather than this this weird destructive nexus of individual personas. So that's, you know, a project that I hope to turn to in the next year.
1: That sounds awesome. I would love to read that. And it's so necessary. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs)
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.